Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. So now that we have emerged from the season of Lent and and come through Holy Week and Easter, and the week after Easter, we're starting a new series. And so uh, I'm always excited about that. So we have a bit by way of introduction before we get to the instruction, but just a little preview to sort of 
give you that taste of something to look forward to. This sermon features two of my favorite things, block quotes and maps. So this is very exciting, uh, Anna. Maps are coming with a laser pointer also. Uh, there will be laser pointing going on. So uh, look forward to that. It's very exciting. Um, all right. So in case you missed it or uh, you forgot or this is, you know, your first week here, no judgment at all. But so last week uh, I preached on the story of, it's from Luke 24 and it's after Easter. It's Jesus's post-resurrection appearance to the disciples who are walking from Emmaus. And we talked about the, the letdown that comes after Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is this day of glorious pageantry, wonderful celebration, you know, packed pews, and then you sort of come crashing back down to earth the, the next Sunday. But in that passage, we encounter one of the deepest truths of Easter, that, that having an encounter with the risen Jesus uh, transforms us into missionaries within our own culture. And that what's happening each and every week as we gather around this table and we we receive God's word with our ears and our minds and and our physical bodies is that we are being equipped, prepared, and trained for this task of living out our missionary vocation in 21st century America. And so my thesis is this, which which I want to carry forward over this next series, is that a Easter people are a missionary people. A community worshiping the risen Christ in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in our scripture this morning, is a missionary community. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking certain aspects of, of what does that mean to live as a missionary in our own culture? How can we do that? How can we be a missionary community? And so we'll be, we'll be talking about um, the E-word. And the E-word is evangelism. And so before I say, what does that look like? And we've got to do a deep dive, I think, on a bit of the history of the word so we can get rid of as many misconceptions or baggage that might go around that as well. And uh, that there is much baggage and misperception around this. is clear from the fact that yesterday I was uh, speaking with my mother-in-law, and she asked me, she said, Dave, well, what's your next sermon series going to be? What are you preaching on next? And I said, oh, well, I'll be preaching on evangelism. And she was like, oh, that's surprising. I I didn't really think of your church as, a, as an evangelism church. And, and at first I was a little offended. Like, what do you mean we don't do evangelism? But she's like, no, no, no. She's like, I couldn't picture you like standing out on a street corner, like pressing tracks into people's hands. And I was like, oh, okay. I get it. I get it. That makes sense. That evangelism for her is, um, you know, that. It's a, it's a, a practice of giving people something um, they may or may not probably don't want. Or, you know, so when I'm talking about evangelism, I'm not talking about passing out tracts. I'm not talking about standing on street corners yelling at people. And I'm not talking about wearing sandwich boards. Although, if the spirit leads, you know, maybe we'll move in those directions. But all right. But that said, that evangelism is absolutely and undeniably central to the life of healthy missional congregations. In fact, um, in the covenant denomination that's part of this cooperative ministry fellowship here... They, they have these 10 markers of healthy missional congregation. So they came up with a list of these are, are 10 sort of vital signs, 10 aspects that you have a healthy missional congregation. And when they say healthy missional, they mean healthy pursuing Christ, missional pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. And so they, they say these are the 10 markers. And so marker number three, right up there near the top, is congregations do intentional Evangelism. So healthy missional churches do evangelism well, and we all want to be healthy and missional, don't we? 
Of course. So we've got to do this well. But if it's sort of an important part of being a a healthy and missional congregation, why is it so hard to do? And I think there's a couple big, gigantic reasons that we can get into. And first, and you can't blame us for this, is that evangelism over the course of church history uh, was something that was basically neglected for centuries. Because after the Roman Empire became officially uh, Christian, basically it was understood that the task of evangelism was completed. And that evangelism continued as sort of the borders of the empire expanded. And so uh, when you look at, at, at how uh, passages of scripture are treated, where the word verb to evangelize is used, or Latin translations, basically this word to evangelize gets translated as preach. And so evangelism gets defined down as giving sermons. And so it wasn't until the 19th century when Christians began to disentangle Christianity from Christendom, uh, uh, Christian faith from a supposedly Christian society, that the term evangelism was recovered to its original meaning, which we see in Scripture, which is to share good news about Jesus in order to lead people from a place of unbelief to belief, from unfaith to faith. In other words, evangelism, when we see it in Scripture, is communication about Christ in order to lead to conversion. And so our first reason that we struggle with this is that the church lost sight of it for almost a thousand years, and so who can blame us, right? If they neglected it, you know, you can't blame us. But I think the real reason we have a problem with evangelism, this idea that we need to share the message of Christ with people who aren't Christians, is that it seems pretty narrow-minded. We live in a pluralist society, and so it seems narrow, it seems arrogant, it seems like just another form of cultural imperialism. You know, I like chocolate ice cream. Maybe you like strawberry ice cream. I can enjoy my chocolate ice cream, can't I, without telling you that you need to get rid of your strawberry ice cream and only like chocolate. And with ice cream flavors, this is absolutely 100% true. And uh, if you go to Sebastian Joe's and you get the flavor formerly known as the Nicollet Avenue pothole, that is the best flavor of ice cream. But you can like what, you know, Oreo or whatever. You do you. But when it comes to the gospel, we can say that it, it, it ain't an ice cream flavor. And so it's all about how we understand what the good news is and who it belongs to. If the good news about Jesus belongs to him, then he sort of gets to tell us what we should do with it. And so we ask, is it just for people who already believe or is it for others? And it's the question of who is it for and who does it belong to? Because if it's for me and it belongs to me, then I can control what I do with it. But if it's been given to me as a gift, it's, it's my responsibility to steward it in the way that the person who gave it to me wants me to. And so if the gospel comes from Jesus and it belongs to him, and he says that it's for everyone, and then I say, you know what, Jesus, I think you were a little off base on this one and being a little narrow and religiously intolerant when you say that we can say that we don't sort of get to dictate the terms. And so the truth is, if we listen to Jesus, the good news about him and from him is good news for everyone everywhere. And if we have been entrusted with the gospel, then it's our sacred responsibility to not hoard it, not hide it, and most importantly, not distort it. The gospel is a treasure, and we certainly carry it in clay jars. But it's a treasure that doesn't belong to us, and it is meant to be shared with everyone 
for their benefit. But that being said, we don't just have to make this up as we go along. There was some really helpful work that was done in the 20th century, and and the church through the ecumenical movement came to a consensus about evangelism uh, through the World Council of Churches, no bastion of fundamentalism by any stretch of the imagination. And they produced a, a document in 1982, a great year, if there ever was a great year, 1982. Some great things happened. I was born... Um, Some other things happened, but this was produced, this document called Mission and Evangelism, an ecumenical affirmation. And so here's what they said in the preface, and this is really, uh, really helpful. So they say in the preface, they say, The church is sent into the world to call people and nations to repentance, to announce forgiveness of sin and a new beginning in relations with God and neighbors through Jesus Christ. This evangelistic calling has a new urgency today, and then they give a bunch of reasons. So they're saying this is what evangelism is. It's announcing this message of forgiveness and of new life uh, in Christ. And they're saying it's not just something that belonged to the past, but it has a new urgency today. And so the church has a mission to the whole world and a message to share with the whole world, regardless of whether those people are Christians or not. And to this, the, the objection is, you know, what about my... Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Wiccan, Pastafarian, um, atheist, etc., friend or neighbor, co-worker or relative. Does being a Christian necessitate me trying to find ways to constantly tell them they're wrong and what they believe is wrong and that they need to believe what I believe and become just like me? No. And again, this document gives really wise counsel when it comes about evangelism in a world of a multi-religious, multi-ideologically shaped world. They say, Christians owe the the message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ to every person and every people. Christians make their witness in the context of neighbors who live by other religious convictions and ideological persuasions. True witness follows Jesus Christ in respecting and affirming the uniqueness and freedom of others. And we confess as Christians that we have often looked for the worst in others and have passed negative judgment upon other religions. We hope as Christians to be learning to witness to our neighbors in a humble, repentant and joyful spirit. All this to say that evangelism is at the heart of being a missionary people in our culture. Good news has been shared with us, and we have good news to share with others, whoever they are. But the message and the manner must be consistent. They must be congruent. A Christ-centered message must be shared in a Christ-shaped and Christ-honoring manner, which means don't be a creep, don't be a jerk, Don't be arrogant, don't be overbearing, don't be closed off, don't be closed-minded, don't be narrow, don't be bigoted, because we remember that Jesus' harshest words and condemnation were always reserved for the religious people who thought that they had it all figured out, and they they thought they had it going on. Evangelism can't be like that. Evangelism is sharing the message of Christ, like Christ, with the goal of helping people take steps in faith towards Christ. So evangelism is sharing the message of Christ, like Christ, so that people can take steps in faith towards Christ. All right, so that's the long preamble and prelude and introduction. But it ignores, of course, the most essential question of all. How do we do that? And how do we do that well? And to answer that, we turn to our passage this morning. This wonderful story from John chapter 4. So we're early in John's gospel, but Jesus here, he's returning from Jerusalem. He's just gone there for the Passover, and so he's going to go back up to, um, to Galilee. But first, he takes a pit stop in the wilderness to visit John the Baptist. And so now it's time to head back home. 
But there's only one problem. In order for Jesus to get from where he is back up to Galilee, he has to pass through a little place called Samaria. And just a refresher, we can remember that Jews and Samaritans hated one another for all sorts of complicated religious and historical reasons. But suffice to say, there were instances of violence, deadly violence between both groups. And so walking through Samaria, you know, was something that pious Jews would avoid, not just, you know, in order to maintain their ritual purity, but because walking through Samaria could get your head bashed in. So it was dangerous. But in verse 4, it says, And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And the verb here is, is it, was, it was necessary. He literally had to. But let's take a look at a map. All right, so we see there's Jerusalem. Jesus was there for the Passover. There's Samaria. There's Galilee. Jesus had to get from here to there. You go, oh, well, okay, I can see, like, he might have to go up through there. But... Jesus was out with John the Baptist over here. Well, there was a very nice and handy and safe road that would have gone east up the side of uh, the Jordan River, and he could have taken that all the way back to Galilee. There was a wonderful road already there for Jesus to take home, whereby he could have completely bypassed Samaria. And it was the safest road, and it was the quickest road, and it was the easiest road. So Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria, strictly speaking. So something else is going on there. And the verb that gets used here for have to, it's the verb that scholars call the verb of divine necessity. So Jesus had to pass through Samaria in the sense that that was what the Father compelled him to do. It was part of his mission. He had to. Because we all know the difference, right, between... You know, a have-to-do list and like a, a have-to-do. You can think of tomorrow. What's on your, you know, have-to-do list tomorrow? All right, I have to go grocery shopping. I have to pick up the kids from school. I have to go to a doctor's appointment. I have to go to work. I have to eat. I have to sleep. I have to brush my teeth. Those kind of have-to-dos, they're, they're all about maintenance. Just maintaining life so we can keep living uh, the way we're doing Maintaining the status quo. But Jesus' have to do in this instance is not about maintenance. It's about mission. Jesus has to pass through Samaria in the sense that he can't not do it. Because there's a Samaritan woman getting water at the well that he has to meet. And so healthy missional churches do evangelism well, not because it's on the, you know, have-to-do list. Okay, these are, ten, these are ten markers. We better check each, every one of them off. So we have to do it. But it's on that have-to-do list. Because we have a burden to carry out the mission of God by sharing the message of Jesus. And so Jesus had to pass through Samaria where he meets a woman at a well in the middle of the day. And there's some strange stuff going on here. First, the fact that the woman's at the well in the middle of the day is telling. The middle of the day in uh, the Middle East is when it's really hot. The old saying is true. Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. And so here she is at the well in the heat of the day where you wouldn't go if you could avoid it. Avoid it unless you had a reason. 
And her reason is that she didn't want to be around anyone else because she was a woman of ill repute. So it's strange. She's at the well, middle of the day. Second strange thing, Jesus goes up to her and he asks her for a drink of water. And so the woman points out helpfully that uh, Jews and Samaritans, we have nothing to do with each other. So why are you talking to me? And more than that, it wasn't just that Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. Uh, In that day and age, uh, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, and still in some conservative uh, societies today, sexes are strictly segregated. You don't go talk to a woman who isn't your relative. That's a, a taboo. And so Jesus, in this strange and simple encounter, he's up to something. And what we see in this, what we see through this encounter and this interaction, we see the shape of how Jesus does mission, which guides how we can do it too. And so like any good sermon, there's three R's to how Jesus does mission. So it's got three points, and they're alliterative, which is very helpful. There's uh, a joke um, that this Twitter persona I follow made. uh, I think it was the underappreciated pastor, not the church curmudgeon. They're two great accounts. But he said, you know, I think it was the church curmudgeon who said, my pastor has sunk more three-pointers this year than Steph Curry. So uh, I'm going to hoist one up here and see, and see if this three-pointer goes in. But these are the three R's of Jesus' mission, the three R's of how Jesus and, and, and how we can do mission like him. And so the first R is that Jesus' mission reaches people who are far from God. So Jesus doesn't wait for this woman to come to him. He doesn't wait for her to make a trip up to Galilee so she can hear him preach and maybe see him perform some miracles. Jesus' mission takes him out of his way, out of what's convenient for him, uh, to reach her in the middle of the day when she should not be at that well, and he, for all sorts of, of, of cultural and religious regions, reasons, shouldn't be speaking to her. And notice that, that her being far from God does not mean that she's not a spiritual or religious person. She's a Samaritan. And from her, her conversation with Jesus, we see, that, we see that she knows all about her religion and the difference between Samaritanism and Judaism. She knows that her people worship on Mount Gerizim and, and Jesus' people worship in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. She knows that her Bible has only the first five books of Moses, whereas Jesus' Bible has at least 34 more, with the history and the prophets and and the Psalms and Proverbs. This she knows. But she doesn't know God, and so the Son of God reaches out to her right where she is, just as she is. And in this congregation, in this sanctuary, a lot of us can testify to the fact that it wasn't we who found God, but God who found God us. Found us when we were running away. Found us when we were an absolute hot mess. Found us when we were filled to overflowing with doubts. Found us when we were buried in in shame and disappointment and we couldn't dig ourselves out. Or, or, Or found us when we were just going along to get along in life. And so every day we are surrounded by people like her, people like us. People who are far from God and people who God wants to reach and who deep down just want someone to reach out to them. Not with a piece of paper, but with a real person-to-person encounter. And we know that because we are those people too. So that's the first R of doing mission like Jesus, that, that God reaches out to those who are far off. 
And the second R of doing mission like Jesus is Jesus' mission is to restore us to who we were created to be, children of God. He meets her at the well, and she's alone because she's been ostracized from her community. And the reason given is, is that she's had five husbands, and currently she's playing house with the uh, man in her life. And so her reputation is trashed. Everyone looks at her, and they say, something's wrong with, something's wrong with you, so I'm going to stay far away from you. And when they say that, these people, they only really have it half right. Okay, there is something going on. There is something wrong in here. You know, this, this, this track of relationships is not indicative of a healthy person, but a broken person. However, they use that as an excuse to push her away. Something's wrong with you. I stay far away from you. But the mission of Jesus takes that second half of the sentence and, and takes the completely opposite track. He says, something's wrong with you. Therefore, I am going to draw close to you so I can restore you. Because she was just surviving day to day, coming here by herself to draw water. But Jesus wants to give her streams of living water so that she will never thirst again, craving love in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong places. Jesus' mission is to restore her with right relationship to God and then a right relationship within her community. Which he does, because we see after she speaks with Jesus, she rushes back into her village. And so this woman who's gone out of her way to avoid everyone, to be at the well by herself, immediately begins talking with people and telling other people about him. And so her process of her encounter with Jesus, it, it, it begins the steps she's taking of reintegrating her into her community. Because she has her vertical relationship with God restored, those horizontal relationships that have been broken can be restored as well. They can be healed. All right, so doing mission like Jesus, the first two R's, there's reach, there's restore, and the last one is reproduce. Jesus' mission leads to more mission happening. She returns to her village, tells people about Jesus, they come and see for themselves. And John tells us at the end of the passage, many Samaritans in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So Jesus' mission doesn't stop with her. His mission gave her a new mission. She went from living by her have-to-do list, okay, go get water, avoid other people, keep your head down, to having a, a new have-to-do, a new mission, a new purpose. Share the source of living water with others. And so when Jesus' mission reaches us, it transforms us, and it never stops with us. I went through church planter training, and we had to sign this pledge at the end, and the pledge was, it won't stop with me. And they put that on a picture frame of all of us who, who were there that day, because we were promising that it wouldn't stop with us. Because we are acknowledging that we are all products of the mission of Jesus not stopping, but reproducing. Every church was once a church plant. Every Christian was once a pagan, even if we didn't know it. So all of us who believe in Jesus, we've had youth pastors or pastors or Sunday school teachers or small group leaders or teachers or mentors or parents or grandparents who reached us with Jesus' message of restoration. 
at some point in our lives. And we realize that because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because we stand on the shoulders of giants, we cannot deny that privilege to others. It can't stop with us. All right, so through this encounter, we've seen how Jesus does mission, which models how we can do mission. It's about reaching, restoring, and reproducing. It's not just about having a mission, but it's about living the mission. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at, okay, how Jesus models living out this mission in terms of, of sharing his life and, his, and, and, and the message about him with others. It's a great acronym, five weeks, a blessing strategy, and it's really good. It's really helpful. I'm really looking forward to it because I, I need to know and understand how Jesus did evangelism and how I can do it to, to reach the lost, restore the broken, and reproduce fruit for the kingdom. Because God did that for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.